Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Ruiel as he continues his sermon series in Colossians. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. The fourth book to be published in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia was called The Silver, Tri- Silver Chair. It's actually the sixth book in the series when you read through that great series of novels. Um, but it's a, it's a story about a, a wicked queen who takes over and creates this entire underworld of existence. She has a, a cavern, and throughout the story, she's trying to take the usual cast of characters, the Jills, the Eustaces, and convince them that there is nothing outside of this dark underworld that she has created. It's called the Silver Chair because She's taken this long-lost Prince of Narnia, Prince Rillian, and turned him into her personal knight, Black Knight. And what's interesting is, for a short period of time in the story, this Black Knight receives total consciousness, remembers everything about who he is, uh, where he came from, that he was a Prince of Narnia, otherwise the enchantment of the witch just keeps him spellbound and, and thinking that, again, there's nothing but this under-dark world that this wicked queen created and controls. If she can just keep him tied to the silver chair for a specific period of time every night, when he regains consciousness that he was once a prince of Narnia, he'll be strapped to that chair, and after a time, he'll go back to being the black knight that that follows the queen. And C.S. Lewis called the place that uh, developed in the story that the wicked queen ruled, he called it the Shadowlands. It was the queen's own dark underworld. And again, her job was to convince everybody that there is no overworld. In fact, there is no Narnia. And so she creates this dark, drowsy song. She creates a fire, and she, she uses her enchantments to convince all of the characters that, that there is no Narnia, there is no Aslan, there's, there's nothing other than the world that she has created. And uh, what's interesting about the silver chair is we meet a brand new character, his name is Puddle Glum. He's a Marsh Wiggle. And if you are a Marsh Wiggle, wiggle you get a lot of uh, pride when you read The Silver Chair because it's the Marsh Wiggle that finally stands up and, and convinces the other characters, the Jill and Eustace, that there is a Narnia and there is an Aslan. At the turning point of the, of the story, this Puddle Glum Marsh Wiggle clears his head and he says this. As the wicked queen is trying to convince them that there is no Narnia. He says, suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things about the world above, trees and grass and sun and Aslan. Suppose we have. He says, then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. I'm going to live like a Narnian as I can ever, even if there isn't any Narnia. And C.S. Lewis, because of the fame of of the Chronicles of Narnia and these stories, he was often asked about what aspect of the Christian life or what metaphor was he using to to write these stories, what was in the back of his mind. And he said it was his creative way of, when writing The Silver Chair, it was his creative way of depicting the powers and the darkness of sin the spiritual battles that Christians experience, as well as non-Christians, just in a a fictional form. In one of his other essays, Lewis describes conversion in an interesting way. 
He says, when we repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ, it's as if God wakes us up from a sleepy slumber of sin. He said that the process of being converted was waking up to life in Christ. And that discipleship was, again, this, another process of becoming fully awake to the reality of everlasting life, of the presence of God, of the existence and the reality of God. One of his essays, he wrote this. He said, think of yourself just as a seed patiently waiting in the earth, waiting to come up into the real world, the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life looked back on from there will seem like only a drowsy half-waking. We are here in the land of dreams, but the rooster crow is coming. Some of us think that we are alive. In a very real sense, we live, we breathe, we work, we move, we do things on a normal basis. In reality, without Christ, you are in the deepest slumber of sin. You just don't know it. Others of us as Christians, I think we, we kind of struggle and sleepwalk through our Christian life. I think in, in some essence of the word at times, we, we are lethargic and we're just halfway living in this, this process, this thing called the Christian life that God has designed for us to know him better on a daily basis. We've woke up to eternal life, but some of us struggle with what I would call spiritual narcolepsy. I need to wake up to the reality of, of a life of a follower of Christ. And it's to those that Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we're about to come to the end of Paul's letter to Colossians. I've got just one more sermon on this series next Sunday, and then we'll, we'll move on to the next uh, series, the next book we're going to preach through. And I want to talk a little bit just about spiritual narcolepsy today. And the first thing you're going to see is as we read Colossians 4, we're going to start in verses 2 and 3. I'll, I'll read through actually verse 4 as we start, is to remain watchful in your prayer life. One of the prescriptions in fighting spiritual narcolepsy, the Apostle Paul will say, is remain watchful in your prayer life. Look down at Colossians 4. I'm going to start in verse 2. The ESV version says this, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Verse four, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. In 1963, Evald Lovestam wrote a book called Spiritual Wakefulness in the New Testament. And one of his great claims of this book was that being awoken to the life of Christ is actually one of the dominant themes that will carry you throughout the New Testament. And he also says that one of the ways to which we can stay and remain spiritually awake is through the avenue of prayer. It's our prayer life. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says in no uncertain terms, prayer is something that Christians must do. Prayer for a Christian is like taking out the trash. It's like paying your taxes. It's like sweeping your floors. It's like vacuuming in your house. Once is never enough. Prayer is something that we do as Christians, whether we like it or not. 
The Apostle Paul calls us to a life of steadfast prayer. One commentator put it this way, prayer is not a spiritual luxury. Prayer is essential for your growth as a Christian. And so verse 2 in the ESV, it says this. It says, continue steadfastly. Some of your other translations will say continue earnestly in prayer or even be devoted to prayer. There's an added prefix onto those, those words there, that steadfast, constant devotion to prayer that it makes this in the Greek an even stronger term. It's not just that we pray on a regular basis, it's that we pray and we pray and we pray on a regular basis that our life is actually marked by prayer. But I want you to notice something about this command because it doesn't say anything about how many of us think of prayer. This command in Colossians says absolutely nothing about the intensity of your prayers. It won't say you'll be hard-pressed to find anything about the emotional life of your prayers. The command that the Apostle Paul gives has nothing to do with intensity, has nothing to do with emotions. Paul's heart here is simply for continual, habitual prayer with perseverance for the Christian. And you see it at other places in the New Testament too. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, one of the shortest verses in the New Testament. Pray without ceasing. Another verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, but be constant in prayer. And sometimes as believers, I think we, we struggle with our prayer life because we want there to be some emotional, uplifting aspect of it. Sometimes we struggle with the mundane, regular, daily prayers in our life. But in essence, Paul says it doesn't matter if it's mundane. It doesn't matter if it feels ordinary. It doesn't matter if it even feels unproductive. And you've got to remember what prayer is. I love what uh, one of my favorite pastors has said about prayer. I think I got this for you. He says, prayer is not merely a way of getting things from God, but a way of getting more of God himself. It's not that we go to prayer asking for things and, and hoping that we get them. It's that we go to prayer knowing that we get more of God in an intimate relationship with him. Prayer is actually a striving to take hold of God. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 7, as, as a way of confession, the prophet uh, confesses back to the Lord, there is no one who calls upon your name, no one who rouses himself to take hold of you. And the rousing to take hold of God is, is, in essence, a synonym for calling on the name of the Lord. It's a synonym for prayer. So when we continue steadfastly in prayer, the Apostle Paul would say this, prayer is continual, it is not casual. Prayer for a Christian is continual, it is not casual. And after that very simple, easy command in the New Testament to always constantly be in prayer, right? This is, this is an easy one for all of us. Hands up, is this difficult for you? To always constantly remain in prayer, right? This is, a, this is a hard, hard command. Paul tells us not only that we should do it, but he tells us how to do it. He tells us the manner in which it should be done. Verse two continues this way. It says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The basic sense of being watchful in the New Testament has the idea of being awake. When you are watchful in something, almost every time in the New Testament, 
you are woken up to it. And I'm not talking about the woke culture of today's generation that you hear about in the media and everywhere else. I'm talking about being awoken to the sense of God that surpasses a spiritual narcolepsy. And I wanna, I wanna draw your attention to this verse. I've got a slide behind you. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 10. This is the same verb that's used in Colossians chapter four, but it's written entirely in a different way. And so we, we would skip it over otherwise. It says, who, speaking of God, died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. I want you to see two things here about this verse. Number one, being awake or being watchful is almost always contrasted with being asleep in the New Testament. There's a theme that kind of draws these two things together, and you see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, almost through the whole chapter. The other thing I want you to see is that often wakefulness is in the context of the imminent return of Christ. And so Paul could be making a connection here with our prayer life. Because Christ is going to return, we stay awake, we stay alert, we are watchful in our prayers, knowing that the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ, is right around the corner. It is imminent. And understand that uh, believers, as we look and as we watch for the return of Christ, we are never ever commanded to look to the stars for the return of Christ. We are never commanded to look for any significant things that are happening in the clouds for the return of Christ. Whenever we are talking about prayer and the return of Christ, it is always mentioned in a way that we live our life according to the fact that Jesus Christ will return imminently, anytime, any day. Jesus Christ could return back to the earth to set up his kingdom and defeat sin once and for all. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying here, orient your life accordingly because Christ is going to return. And that should spur us on to a deeper prayer life. One more observation. How many of you guys have prayed a prayer that goes something like this? Father, I pray that as I kind of looking at taking this new job, you would open a door for me to sit before the right people and give me favor be, before these supervisors. How many of you have paid, Marwin, did you ever pray this before you and Ruth got married? Say, God, would you open a door so that Ruth will say yes when I ask her to marry me, right? Lord, would you open this door so that I could have this relationship with this person, get married to this person, take this job, buy this car, do whatever this issue is, we pray for open doors a lot. And you know, as, as you've heard before, brothers and sisters, when God closes a door, he opens a window, amen? <laughs> not, not really. And we totally miss this whole idea of, a, of an open door in Colossians chapter 4. We have taken that phrase and used it and abused it in ways that the New Testament does not. Look down at your text. What is Paul praying for an open door toward? What's the open door referring to in verse 3? An open door for the, the word, for the gospel, for the proclamation of the gospel. Paul's not praying that God will open a door so that he can walk through it. He's praying that the message of the gospel will be opened in the hearts and lives of people, that the Holy Spirit will do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And here's what it sounds like. Father, I pray that you would soften the hearts of unbelievers in this area right now. I pray that you would soften the hearts of my neighbors. 
I pray that you would soften the hearts of my coworkers. I pray that you would give me courage and help me to proclaim the gospel clearly and take those opportunities when they come about. It's all related to the gospel and people hearing the truth of the gospel. And some of you guys are reading this and, and saying to yourself, you know, Jared, come on. And this is the Apostle Paul is writing in the first century here. Things were a lot slower to pray continuously, steadfastly to be devoted to prayer. In the first century, yeah, we can do that in our lifestyle. In the 21st century, you're kidding me. I got dates, deadlines, I got demands, and take up my time and effort. I don't have, I don't have time to devote my entire life to prayer, to, to staying in constant, steadfast prayer. The uh, early church father, Augustine, had a really interesting testimony when he came to know the Lord. He was in a garden walking around, and he heard a, a girl's voice singing, actually, and she was, she was singing this uh, refrain, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And so Augustine took up his Bible, and he turned to Romans chapter 13, and he read these verses, and they were the pivotal verses for him to, to finally come to Christ. And it says this, Romans 13, 11 through 14. I don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you quickly. It says, besides, you know that, that the time, the hour, has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The command is, it's, it's simple enough. Continue in prayer. Be watchful as you pray. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean at a practical level in our Christian lives? What does that mean as we fight spiritual narcolepsy? Because all of us will at some point. And I want to give you five things. This is going to sound like an application. We're not closing it off yet. But I want to give you five things that I think Paul means when he uses this phrase, be watchful, be steadfast in your prayer life with thanksgiving. The first thing I think it means is this. Number one, it means that we are alert enough to see things as they are. It means as Christians, through our prayer life, we can see spiritual danger coming before it gets into our lives. Remember Garden Gethsemane? Remember Jesus with his disciples? Right before he is taken, right before he is arrested, he says, sit here, remain with me, watch and what? And pray, because you will be tempted. He says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak in the context that we are alert enough to see things, the reality of things, how they are. A lot of that comes through a devoted, consistent prayer life. Number two, being watchful and thankful means that you will never see your own heart and you will never see your worst faults apart from prayer. Apart from prayer, you will never see the reality of your own heart and your worst, fault, your worst faults. Yes, prayer is a gaze at God, but at the same time, it's a gaze back to yourself, the areas of your heart that the gospel hasn't touched yet, 
the things in your life that you might be holding on to or putting more hope in than you actually need to. Remember, prayer is not primarily about getting things from God. It's primarily about getting God himself. And so as we learn about God, we learn more about ourselves, the things that we need to trust him more in, the things that we need to confess and give over to God. Third thing, thirdly, apart from prayer, you will never see the realities of life to make wise decisions like you should. Apart from a watchful prayer life, you will never see the realities of life to help you make wise decisions the way that you should. James says that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously, without doubting, and trust that the Lord is going to give you the wisdom that you need for those decisions. Number four, watchful prayer reorients your heart from what you want to believe to what you should biblically believe. Watchful prayer reorients your heart from the things that you want to believe to the things that you should believe by Scripture and as a follower of Christ. All of us, all of us have a way of looking at life. All of us have uh, ways of approaching, approaching decisions, a worldview according to the things that happen to us that at times is too high or it might even be too low or too simplistic based on what you want to believe about a person, a situation, or a circumstance. A watchful person in prayer is as innocent as a dove, but as shrewd as a serpent. A watchful prayer person in prayer doesn't get caught up into what they want to believe about a situation, a person, or a thing, but actually what Scripture tells us about the reality of sin, about the hearts of men and women, about the difficulties of living in a fallen world. Prayer helps us to develop a, a spiritual look at life that is in tune with spiritual realities beyond the things that are earthly, the things that you can see, touch, and feel, but into the things that are, that are spiritual, things that happen in heavenly places. Number five, watchful prayer guards your heart from idolatry. As human beings who struggle with sin, all of us, all of us, have a tendency to trust the wrong things and put hope in the wrong places. It's just natural for us because of a bend towards sin. Watchful prayer guards you from putting too much stock into the world. We all have our favorite politicians. We all have our favorite people. We all have agendas and we all have attractions, but watchful prayer reminds us and reorients our hearts to make sure that we are not serving idols, but that we are serving the Lord and totally worshiping Him and no one else. The prescription for spiritual narcolepsy, number one, is to remain watchful in your prayer life, consistently devoted to prayer. Number two, <clears throat> we remain wise in our public lives. We remain wise in our public lives, we remain watchful in our prayer lives. Look down at verse five. Another command here, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And Paul encourages believers in spiritual wakefulness with prayer, and he also encourages us to be spiritually awake with people, with relationships. And it's not just all relationships, it's specifically our relationships with unbelievers or outsiders. Universally, commentators realize that who Paul is talking about here when he references outsiders are those who are outside of the community of faith, outside the local community of believers. 
where do we go to reach them? How do we enter wisely into relationships with lost people without becoming wrapped up in the world around us? How do we engage with your neighbors, with coworkers, without slipping into sin yourself? How do you be in the world but not of the world, right? Your neighbors down the street might be very helpful and caring, but they also might be homosexuals. How do you reach out? How do you be wise to them as outsiders? Your coworkers are not just going to happy hour on Thursday for an hour. They might be going to happy hour and sticking around a lot longer than they need to. Some of us are inclined maybe to, to keep unbelievers at, at arm's length, out of protection for ourselves. After all, we're called to holiness. We're called to follow the Lord with integrity, with sincerity, um, to be continually killing sin, or sin will be killing us. We often forget that our holy, perfect, sinless Savior was also a friend of sinners. And so, since it can be such a daunting and difficult task to, to meet outsiders, to rub shoulders with people who need the gospel, to look for opportunities to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is something that we need wisdom to do. We need to walk with wisdom toward those relationships in the body of Christ. And Paul encourages us to make the most of our time. That Greek word there is ex agorazo. It's, a, it's the marketplace. It means to purchase something, but you purchase something out of the marketplace. It means to buy back or even redeem. Some of your translations might say redeem the time or make the most of the time that you have with outsiders. What that means is we buy up and we look for every opportunity that we have to reach outsiders with the gospel. Okay, Apostle Paul, I get that. Steadfast in prayer, I got you. What does that mean? What does it mean to have these relationships? What do they look like? And what, is, what does the text say? What does it mean to walk with wisdom toward outsiders? Does it mean to go certain places or not go certain places? Does it mean that we... Um, stay away from this type of person or that type of sin? What does the Apostle Paul say when he jumps into it? And, and honestly, this verse is, is very, um, it's shrouded in mystery. There's just not a lot here. In fact, the verse talks more about what we should say with our mouth and how we should act with our actions and our behaviors around outsiders. The question is not so much what Paul said, it's, it's what Paul left unsaid when we engage with outsiders. I love how one commentator put it. He said, much more than doing right, what Paul highlights here is speaking wisely. Much more than doing rightly, Paul highlights speaking wisely. Specifically, he talks about Christian speech. It's that everything that we say with our mouths before a watching world should be filled with grace. Everything we say should be seasoned as it was with salt, that grace would be the seasoning behind all of our words towards an unbelieving world. And at the end of verse 6, Paul puts this in the context of, of answering people. Is there, a, is there an apologetic course that he's given here? People are asking you questions about the gospel. They want to know more about this God that you serve. You're answering to them about the truth of the gospel. When you do so, you don't do so aggressively. You don't do so saying, I'm right, you're wrong, and so, hey, let's pray about it. Right? You do so with grace. You do so with a, with a heart 
for a gracious relationship as they see you as the person who is uh, representing Christ in those situations. If that's the case, the point is not necessarily for us to win arguments, but to welcome wanderers home to the truth of the gospel and to the family of God. You ever wonder why uh, Sleeping Beauty and dominant spells are such a deep part of the ongoing fairy tales that you read about over and over again? You ever notice how there's, there seems to be this common thread in almost all the great stories when we were kids about a time when a, a spell was cast over the kingdom and darkness and thorns and thistles came about because of it? You ever wonder why we're so attracted to the, to the Prince Charming? the one who wakes us up out of a hundred-year slumber and gives us life in a relationship and an existence that's different than anything that we've ever experienced before. Perhaps it's because underneath all of those stories is a greater, grander story of the gospel and redemption. Perhaps it's because as hard as Hollywood wants to try, as, as hard as the folk stories of old wants to try to get away from the truth of the gospel, you can't get away from the truth of the gospel in the enduring themes of, of redemption, of hope, of new life, of grace, of forgiveness, of a new start. In the Bible, you'll, you'll see an interesting way of, of death depicted. In 1 Kings, you see it all over the place, and it goes into 2 Chronicles especially. It talks about the life of the kings. You'll hear verses like 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. David, the king at that time, slept with his fathers. And he was buried in the city of David. First Kings eleven forty three. Solomon slept with his fathers, and he was buried again in the city of David. Do you ever wonder why that phrase is used over and over again to describe maybe death, the existence after life? What does it mean that we go through all of these things through Scripture? There's a really, really famous probably a story in the Gospels that you all know pretty well. When Jesus hears um, the uh, Jairus' daughter is, uh, is sick and has died, and he makes his way over to Jairus' house to minister and to heal this daughter, right? And on the way, he meets this woman with a, a discharge of blood. It's been for 12 years she struggled with it. The woman reaches out and touches the cloak of Jesus, and she's healed and then he picks up and he goes right to the house of, of Jairus' daughter. And, and when he gets there, everybody is, wheeling, is, is moaning, weeping, and wailing because this child has died. She's dead. And what does Jesus say when he walks into the scene? So what is all this commotion about? She's not dead. She's asleep. Right? And he goes in the room and he just says two words, says, uh, Talitha kum, Aramaic for little girl, arise. Wake up. And she comes back to life. The reason that we love the stories of Sleeping Beauty, the reason that we love these stories behind uh, all the great stories is because they get to the truth of the greatest story that's ever told, the greatest story of the gospel. And in the gospel, Jesus took sleeping, slumbering people 
who were destined for nothing but hell, death, and destruction because they had set their hearts and lives against him from the very first day. He takes sleep, sleeping sleepwalkers through life, and he breathes life into them. He wakes us up to the truth of the gospel through the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross on Calvary for us and for our sins. Jesus came to wake us out of the slumber of sin. Then he came to give us not only life, but life abundantly. And so as Christians, now we are caught up in this whole thing called discipleship where we are waking up to the reality of everlasting life, of living in this fallen world, of difficulties, of struggling with sin. One of the worst things that we can do today, this morning, is that you guys close up your Bibles in Colossians 4 and you go right back to the normal things that you always do, just sleepwalking through life, going to work, waking up the next day, maybe coming to church on Sunday, maybe not, not developing Christian relationships, not being discipled by somebody earlier, older than you in the faith. Older men teach younger men. Older women teach younger women. The worst, the very worst thing you could do is close this and leave this morning and sleepwalk out of here and go back to your normal treadmill of experiential life that is void of the life of God. Wake up out of your spiritual narcolepsy. Develop a watchful prayer life in doing so. And then engage these relationships with unbelievers in a meaningful, engaging way, looking for opportunities to share the gospel, redeeming the time to bring them the truth of it. If spiritual slumber is destructive, then spiritual wakefulness is discipleship. If spiritual slumber is destructive for you and I, then spiritual wakefulness is discipleship. Perhaps you're here today this morning and your spiritual life is waning, your vitality is waning. Perhaps you have very little energy for the things of God. Perhaps you're here today and because I'm such a monotone, boring speaker, you've fallen asleep in your chair right now. I used to pastor in Kansas and I kid you not, every time the harvest came around, these guys were working, maybe slept two hours before they came for the Sunday service when it was harvest time, maybe two hours. And Farmer Bob would come right up to me right after the service, said, Jared, I'm so sorry. I've been working through the harvest. I didn't catch anything you said. I was sleeping the whole time. I said, Bob, I get it, man. It's okay. If I can put you to sleep and give you some rest on a Sunday, man, that's my job as a pastor. (laughs) So enjoy your rest. And once the harvest is done, we can just pick back up, all right? I'll come give the sermon to you on your combine, and it'll be fine. Spiritual narcolepsy is real. It's a serious problem. We get complacent. Mediocrity in your life with Christ. It will be a struggle at some time, in some place. If it's not right now, praise the Lord, keep praying, keep remaining watchful. And know that if you don't pursue a diligent, consistent prayer life, If you don't engage outsiders with the truth of the gospel, realize that we're not just playing around with life out here. Death and life are at stake on a daily basis for people. You can wake up out of that slumber 
and be a part of a discipleship process that is real, that is wakeful, that keeps you alert, sober-minded, and on a mission against the kingdom of darkness, waking people up out of their slumber of sin, being used by God to bring them the truth of the gospel and the greatest story that's been ever, ever told. God is saying to you this morning, wake up. Wake up to the things of God. And your life will be ever changed because of it. Oh, let's pray. And then we've actually got a video that we're going to show, and I'm going to ask Kyle to come down if you can, you can make your way down here. Kyle's got an announcement for us. Father in heaven, it is so important for us uh, not only to be people who pray, but also people on mission. Uh, people who look for opportunities, people who pray for open doors to share the gospel with others. Lord, we've seen so many things in Colossians, and it, and it just seems appropriate that Paul would end with a, a command for us to, um, to live a life of prayer, but also to live a life on mission with you. Um, God, help us to, to be strong and to be wakeful in the seasons of spiritual narcolepsy that we often struggle with, that I can struggle with even in my life. Lord, help me to, to wake up to the need for prayer, to be watchful, to be thankful at all times in prayer. Help us as a church to, to be on mission, to wake people up out of sin with the truth of the gospel, but to do so with, with gracious words, seasoned with salt, uh, who Christ is, what he came to do in his great love and mercy for us who don't deserve it. And Father, as we, uh, as we watch this video, I pray that you might even uh, urge us to be involved in missions in a different way this year, in 2023. And help Tulsa Bible Church to be uh, to continue uh, just its amazing ministry of missions, not only here in Tulsa but uh, around the world. We ask all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. For you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. <laughs>